You're listening to a podcast from York City Church. If you like what you hear and you'd like to find out more, please visit our website at www.yorkcitychurch.org.uk. Right, so at, at first glance, that might sound like your standard stereotypical psalm. David's up against it yet again. There's some sort of trouble at hand. He's pleading with Yahweh to bring deliverance and he seeks God's guidance and leading. He begs for God's mercy before reminding God how good he is of his amazing wonderful attributes and especially how amazing and wonderful those attributes are towards any frail humans that seek his guidance and leading and mercy. That moment when, help, I'm in trouble. The best knock out a prayer, but sing some worship songs, get right with God. And that might be a bit what it looks like on the surface, but as we dig into it, we're going to see that perhaps there's something more going on uh, beneath the surface. So, good morning, everyone. As Al said, uh, my name is John Healy. Um, welcome to York City Church. Whether it's your first time with us or you've been here since the dawn of time, you are most welcome with us this morning. Uh, this morning, I'm going to be taking you through uh, several scriptures from uh, our lectionary readings uh, on this, the first Sunday of Advent. <laughs> And the first of those readings is that psalm that obviously we've just read together. So uh, what's special about the psalm? What is different about it? What is not immediately apparent? And it's something that you might notice if you were reading the psalm very carefully in the original Hebrew. And I say very carefully because even in Hebrew you could easily miss what's happening over here. You see, this psalm is what we would call an acrostic poem. In other words, every, the first letter of every verse in the psalm starts with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So the first verse with Aleph, second verse with Beit, second verse with Gimel, first, fourth verse with Dalet, etc. That's my six-week crash course in Hebrew from 20 years ago, and that's all I can remember. <laughs> And there's actually a number of instances in Scripture where a similar device is used, uh, particularly in the Hebrew poetry of the Bible. There's a handful of psalms that are acrostic. If you're reading through your Bible, you might notice Psalm 119 in particular. Often in our English Bibles, there's a heading uh, above each set of eight verses uh, in there. It's a, a large acrostic. In fact, the whole book of Lamentations is this giant acrostic poem, five sets of the Hebrew alphabet all the way through eight sets, depending on, on how you choose to measure that. And so what, what, does that, what does that matter? Does, does that mean that you kind of need to go away and learn Hebrew in order to understand the Psalms or the Bible or the Old Testament? Uh, I mean, learning Hebrew certainly won't harm your understanding of the Bible. Definitely do it if you get the chance to do it. Uh, but it's perfectly okay to read the Bible in English or, or any other language of your choice. God can still speak to you. Your life can still be enriched by Scripture in, in any language. So, for me, this, this acrostic speaks more about the author's state of mind, his intentions, what, 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 he, what it means beneath the surface rather than what's in the actual message uh, of, of the psalm. And once we know that there's an acrostic there, it gives us an opportunity to sort of interpret what might be going on uh, at one layer below the actual words. 
And so I'm not going to dwell on the message of that psalm uh, at all, but rather focus on what I see as two potential implications of the fact this is an acrostic device. And the first implication is that I don't think this is a pressure psalm. I don't think that this psalm was pushed out in a hurry. I don't think it was kind of scribbled in lipstick on the back of a, you know, a, 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 a serviette in, in, a, in, a, in a diner and sort of shoved in a back pocket or, or anything like that. This is something that was, you know, if you've ever tried to come up with an acronym for anything that makes sense, it can be really difficult. It's tough enough as a preacher coming up with three or four C's or P's let alone trying to write something 22 verses long exactly, each verse starting with the correct letter of the alphabet in, in sequence. And so I think this is a psalm that was really crafted with loving care. It was thought about. Some effort went into writing it. I imagine some rewrites had to take place along the way. This is a considered piece. So, why would you spend some time in a completely unpressurized, unhurried environment taking your time to write a psalm that is most applicable to a high-pressure situation? And why would you go and make that doubly hard by making it an acrostic poem? So to that I would respond, my very energetic monkey jumps sideways under nine planets. I learned that mnemonic in a geography lesson that took place in a prefabricated classroom in 1992. After nearly 30 years, I can't remember what time of the year that took place. I can't remember the name of the teacher. I can't remember what he or she looked like. But I can remember the order of the nine planets in our solar system. Assuming, of course, that Pluto hasn't been relegated again. And so, for me, the second implication of why it was written as an acrostic device is that it was designed to be remembered. Because I think David understood something profound about waiting for deliverance. Our Netflix generation has been trained and conditioned to think that any crisis can be solved in 43 minutes. 22 minutes if it involves quirky and witty characters. But David understood that the deliverance of Yahweh is an ongoing work. It's not something that happened once when you prayed the sinner's prayer and and that was it, and that's your life sorted, and that's it. Waiting for the deliverance of the Lord is part of the pattern of living out a kingdom life. It has happened, it is happening, and it will continue to happen. And so in the midst of waiting and seeking that deliverance, there will of course be times of heightened crisis. There's times when it feels like the enemy is about to bash down your door and it's at those times that you want to have something to hand, some words to cry out to the Lord. And how are you going to do that effectively in your time of crisis when you're paralyzed with distress? We've all had those moments where something happens, there's some shock event and you're completely lost for words and, 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 taking by, and you blurt out something you know, insane or nothing at all. Or when you're tired and exhausted and your brain just stops to function in the way that it normally does. What could be easier than reciting the alphabet 
with each letter recalling the great truths of your present circumstances and the role of Yahweh in them. That's why we do things like recite liturgy in our meetings. It's why we participate in the rituals of communion and worship and listening to the word preached because when we gather on Sundays and, and small groups and do other, all those other habitual things, when we read and we study scripture and we pray uh, both in public and in our personal uh, time alone and with our families, why we practice Sabbath and rest, all of those things are about training ourselves how to respond in a kingdom-minded way to the world around us and even more so when a crisis time hits. When that crisis hits and our lizard brains take over and we strike out with learnt behaviours, we want those to be learnt behaviours that reflect the work of Jesus in our lives and bring honour to him. And so when that crisis hits, it's not about how hard you seek God in that crisis, and of course do that, of course do that. But your success in dealing with that crisis is all about how you have sought him and continue to seek him prior to that crisis, about the habits and the patterns that you've already built into your life. So why don't we consider the prophet Jeremiah for a few minutes. You might remember something of Jeremiah from the series we did a few years back. I'm conscious we've got a few people who weren't with us at that time, so perhaps a quick recap might be helpful. Jeremiah is one of the longest books of the Bible. It's covering the prophetic ministry of one of uh, the great prophets, his namesake, Jeremiah. Uh, He prophesied for around 40 years from uh, about 627 BC to 585 BC, long before any of us were born. Uh, 100 years before his ministry, the whole kingdom uh, of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, the top part of what we would recognize today as uh, sort of the, the, the political state of Israel had been conquered and destroyed by Assyria. And so only the southern kingdom of Judah remains, centered around uh, Jerusalem and God's chosen people. Now over the time of Jeremiah's ministry, uh, he'd seen Judah transformed from sort of a a prosperous time of revival under uh, King Josiah to uh, almost utter destruction by the Babylonians. In fact, by the end of his ministry, complete destruction by the Babylonians uh, and, and the humiliation of the ruling religious and political classes of his day. And so we're picking up the story uh, right near the end of his ministry, uh, probably sometime around 588 to 586 BC. Uh, What's going on is uh, the Babylonians are camped outside the city walls of Jerusalem. And things are looking pretty dire. There's a siege going on, um, so that's pretty bad if your team Zedekiah. It's probably all right if your team Nebuchadnezzar. Um, But the whole the, the city and the surrounding land are, are, are empty of, of, of fellow countrymen, fellow Jews, and their livestock. There's no joy anywhere. Nobody's happy about this. Uh, the streets in the city, they're quiet uh, because wherever they can, people have fled to, to the countryside and the surrounding hills to get, get away from uh, the siege and the Babylonian army if they can. Um, so all around the outskirts of the city, in fact, sort of inside the city walls, we, we live in York. So if you imagine all, all the sort of buildings next to the city walls have all been torn down. 
uh, so everybody's houses have been destroyed to sort of make uh, defenses uh, against this Babylonian siege. Uh, so everyone's lives are on hold. There's, there's nothing good going on in, in, in Jerusalem. Nobody's getting married. There's no bar mitzvahs happening. There's, there's just there's nothing going on. There's just, just panic and, and, and distress. And, and in old times, when a siege sets in, that's bad news. So it's not long before you know, people, are, people are hungry, people are starving, people are, people are worried, people are dying, uh, and the Babylonians haven't even got there yet. And, and that's the sort of situation that, that Jeremiah is in. And, and actually, Jeremiah is sort of a, a prisoner. I say sort of a prisoner at this stage. He's not actually in a prison cell because uh, they don't quite know what to do with him. He's sort of in the courtyard of the guardhouse. He's sort of being allowed to uh, just live in, in, in this courtyard and, and roam around and get up to his uh, a, a business because he's got himself in trouble with a king, mostly because he keeps telling the authorities that actually the Babylonians represent God's, uh, God's work in their lives and, and, and they don't like them. He says, you must yield to them. And the king thinks that's a bad idea. He doesn't want to hear that message. Um, and, and so poor Jeremiah has been treated really sort of unjustly and unrightly in the city that is full of injustice and unrighteousness. And he's locked up in this locked up city, certain that neither he nor Jerusalem are going to escape the wrath of Babylon. And so you couldn't really craft kind of a sadder situation to be in or a more despairing scene for for the people of God uh, and their top-ranked celebrity prophets, Jeremiah. And, and so from that courtyard, he prophesies in Jeremiah 33, and, and that's where we are uh, now. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will live in safety. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Now, if you prophesy like that, when your entire city, your entire life, everybody you know, everything that's going on, everything you've ever known is about to be completely and utterly destroyed, people are going to think that you're off your rocker. Or you've got to be so confident in God and his word that you cannot help but say what seems to most people to be utterly preposterous. People think that Jeremiah's already nuts. The king thinks he's deranged and dangerous. That's kind of why he's trapped in the courtyard. But in reality, what's going on is that Jeremiah has spent his whole life wrestling with God, wrestling with Scripture, steeping himself in the truths of God and who he is and what he is doing amongst his people. And Jeremiah is not a young man over here. This is right at the end of this. This is the end of his, his, his profiting career, his ministry. And, and when the biggest crisis of all hits, his response is not one of panic and despair, but of faith and hope for a vision of what God is really up to. So why don't we spend just a couple of minutes having a look at that, at this, at this passage. There are similar words elsewhere in uh, the book of Jeremiah, and essentially they remind us of God's promise to King King David. Back in the second book of Samuel in the Old Testament, we hear the story of how David decides he's going to build a house for the Lord, a temple, somewhere for the Lord to live. And uh, Yahweh speaks to to David through the prophet Nathan, and he kind of says, no, don't do that. Don't build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. And God makes this covenant with David, and he says, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. 
your throne shall be established forever. Except right now as Jeremiah languishes in that courtyard, it's looking like that covenant that God made is broken and unachievable. David's family tree has come to an end. The Davidic line has been cut off. It's, it's become nothing more than like a stump in the ground. But Jeremiah takes comfort even in that situation because he knows the promises of God. He knows there is a covenant that cannot be broken. He's trained himself over a lifetime of serving Yahweh, not to despair, but to wait patiently for God's deliverance. And so he's able to look ahead to that time when out of that tree stump, a new green shoot is going to sprout. A righteous branch, one that will restore the family tree, and more so. Now from our vantage point, we can obviously see that that's Jesus. Jeremiah may not be able to see that, but what he can see is a situation in which God's people lack leadership, and they lack the presence of a priesthood to, to, to offer sacrifice for the people's sins. And that means the people are unable to achieve righteousness before God. But Jeremiah's been waiting with expectation and he knows that a day is coming, which as he says in verse 17, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel and the priests shall never lack a man in my presence to make sacrifices for all time. You might notice in here how this promise is for the house of Judah and for the house of Israel. If you were listening earlier, you might know that Israel hasn't been a thing for 130 years. The Assyrians marched in, they obliterated the place, they repatriated its citizens, and they took some horrible, unclean, unJewish riffraff and deposited them there instead. And even before that, relationship wasn't so great between the two. These were brothers divided. This promise is being reaffirmed in the context of a broken and divided people of God, but it is fulfilled in a single house of Israel. Jeremiah is looking forward with expectation to a day when the righteous branch of David will reconcile the divisions in God's people. Right now, Jeremiah is not in a land of righteousness and justice, but when that branch springs up, it will become just that. We like to classify eras and epochs by handy names like the Renaissance and the Enlightenment and the Dark Ages and the Victorian times, but Jeremiah is looking forward with expectation to a time called the Lord is our righteousness, where God himself becomes the source of our righteousness rather than this army of Levitical priests offering sacrifices. I think you could say that perhaps the most striking characteristic of the people of God is that they are recipients of his righteousness. And in a land filled with war and famine and disease and distress, distress and broken homes, that's quite literally and metaphorically, God's people have, can have absolute confidence to wait expectantly for Messiah to come and to bring justice and peace and righteousness. I'm sure you're listening to all of that and you might say, hang on a moment, John, but Jesus has come and there is still violence and famine and disease and injustice and poverty and all manner of suffering in the world today. 
That whole question of suffering is a complex subject. For many, many, many people, it can be a barrier to faith. It's even a challenge for many Christians in their walk with the Lord. Throughout the history of Christianity, thinkers and philosophers and theologians far more qualified than I have grappled with that issue and often made very little headway. So I'm not even going to attempt to solve that in a few minutes here. But what I would say is I think God has done something to stop suffering, violence, and injustice in the world. Now Jesus wasn't surprised by the fact of ongoing suffering in the world. Let's look quickly at what he says to his disciples in the book of Luke as he talks about the state of the world prior to the time when he comes again. There will be signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars, and on the earth distress among nations confused by the roaring of the sea and waves. People will faint from fear and foreboding of what is coming upon the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. They will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, stand up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Let's skip the next slide for time. Uh, Verse 34, be on guard so that your hearts are not weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of this life and that day catch you unexpectedly like a trap. Verse 36, be alert at all times, praying that you may have the strength to escape all these things that will take place and to stand before the Son of Man. You know, there is so much distress and confusion in this world. The entire narrative of our age is one of foreboding for what is to come. And many do faint with fear. There's distress and confusion and fear over environmental collapse, global warming. There's distress and confusion and fear over economic and banking systems and the rise of populist politics and extremism on the right and the left and influence of tech companies and big banks who fund them and totalitarian regimes and the collapse of democracy and, and, and all sorts. But we don't respond with distress and confusion to those things and fear because as believers, you know, even though we have the Holy Spirit in us, even though you know, we, we feel more deeply over social injustice, over the destruction of the environment, over human rights and women's rights and workers' rights and systematic, we feel more deeply over those things because those things grieve the Lord and that the Holy Spirit within us makes us respond to those things. But we're not distressed and confused and fearful. No, we're not consumed with the worries of this life. We don't let our hearts get weighed down. We don't respond like the world does with dissipation and drunkenness to those things. If anything, hope rises within us despite everything we see around it, maybe even because of it. We live our lives in confidence and we stand strong. We raise our heads. We praise the Lord. Why? Because we know they are signs that our redemption is drawing near. It's so easy to get sucked into the day-to-day living out of our lives and become just like everyone else. We have to push hard against that. We don't want to get caught in a trap. No, we're on our guards. We're looking out. We're anticipating the coming of the Lord. Not because we want an easy exit from everything that's wrong with the world, because we know that the events of Christ's life and death and resurrection and his ascension 
made the end of suffering and injustice and violence inevitable. And we know that the work he began, he will bring to a conclusion when he returns once more. We know that the future holds righteousness and justice, and so we do not live as other people live. We're like Jeremiah in the courtyard, even when all the evidence surrounding us would suggest that everything is about to fall apart, we know differently. And that enables us to proclaim God's goodness despite the circumstances. As I mentioned earlier, today is the first Sunday of Advent. That reminder time that Christmas is near. It's that time of the year when we eagerly look forward to food and drink and presents and family and the Queen's speech and TV specials and everything else. I don't think there's anything wrong with looking forward to those things. You know, I... On reflection, I don't even think that they diminish the significance of Christmas. In fact, I'd encourage you to eagerly wait for all of those things. Because reminding ourselves that there is something worth eagerly waiting for is kind of the whole point of Advent. So let's practice eagerly waiting. Of course, we're waiting for King Jesus arriving as a baby in a manger in Bethlehem and shepherds and wise men and uh, all of those beautiful nativity scenes that are are probably horribly misrepresented. Uh, But that's about something that's celebrating something that happened in the past. Of, Of course, it might be the most important historical event that's ever happened in world history, God becoming man. But Advent is also about getting excited and eagerly awaiting an event that is just as big as that. The time when King Jesus comes again. And so let's practice that type of waiting this Advent. Let's build ourselves a hope for a future that can transcend anything that is going around us so that when that crisis hits, whether it's personal or global, your response is not distress and panic and confusion and fear, but full of hope and confidence and praise. Knowing that whatever your present circumstances, God's plan to execute justice and righteousness in the land is inevitable because Christ came and that plan will be completed when he comes again. Why don't we stand together and before we take communion, we're just gonna pray a prayer. Let's say it all together out loud. Almighty God, give us grace to cast away the works of darkness and to put on the armor of light. Now in the time of this mortal life in which your son Jesus Christ came to us in great humility, that on the last day when he shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge the living and the dead, we may rise to the life immortal through him who is alive and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.
We're going to take communion together as we finish up this morning. Please look forward to Christmas, and let's eagerly await the returning of our Lord.